listening to the Podcast Network. Listen, learn, evolve. G'day, you're on the pod with Mick and Ken from the G'day World Podcast. Interview with Doug Kay. Calling Doug now. Cameron. G'day, Doug. Welcome to G'day World. Thank you. How are you? Good, thanks, mate. Good. How does it feel to be on the other end of the line? Yeah, I'm getting used to it, actually. I've done, I think in the last two weeks, I've done about a half a dozen interviews. Get out of here. No, it's true. Oh, well, I feel much less special now, Doug. No, no, you're very special. Yours is one of the few that's in English. <laughs> is that right? Well, I did, I did one for... Uh, it was hilarious. I did a double ender with, uh, what was it? It was Danish radio, Danish public radio. And they sent me the URL and said, hey, the interview's up. Come listen to it. I went to listen to it. All the questions were now in Danish, and my answers were in English. Very clever. Hey, how's my audio? I'm actually in the studio on the studio mic instead of on a, uh, uh, a regular mic. Man, you sound absolutely like honey dripping from the gods. <laughs> well, you sound good, too. I'm going to have to go in in post-production and mess with your audio a little bit so you don't sound quite as good because you're showing me up. Oh, no, don't don't say that. You can you, you can muck it up a bit. That's all right. Put in some scratches and pops and things like that. No, really. I mean, you, you sound like a god, and you are a god to us podcasters, us fledgling podcasters. <laughs> you know, you're up there in the pantheon of podcasting gods. Oh, my God, I better sit down. <laughs> Can you sit down, or do you like kind of levitate a few inches above the seat when you try? No, I, I, I can sit down. I can still do that once in a while. Now listen, I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Look, and I have to confess, Doug, I know very little about you. I mean, of course I know about IT conversations. And My wife knows very little about me either. <laughs> well, that's, that's the way it should be. But we're your listeners. We're your fans. We should know more about you than your wife. She has to live with you. That's true. So... You know, I've been doing a little bit of Googling and trying to get a bit of a biography on the Doug Kay and trying to find some dirt. I wanted to ask you about something that would shock the listeners, but I couldn't find any dirt. Is there any dirt out there on you, Doug? Uh, let's see. I failed my first semester of French in college and had to take it again. Uh, that, that was a long time ago. Um, no, there's some. I mean, there's dirt in everybody's background. You know, I had uh, I started a number of companies, and not all of them worked out. So, uh, yeah, there's there's always some garbage in there. Well, that's just experience, right? That's true. <laughs> so, tell me a bit about the background. Let's for people who have either never heard of IT conversations, or have never tuned in, or at least don't know the background to IT conversations. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of it and where it came from? Well, it was a complete accident. In fact, I. Uh, I had left uh, a company in 2000 and I started writing books thinking that was a reasonable thing to do for company for somebody who was nearly unemployed and um and my second book was a book on web services and I was interviewing people and recording those interviews over the telephone and after doing a couple of these interviews I realized that 
the people I was talking to would always know so much more about web services than I ever would that as a writer, I was really just getting in the way. So my idea was, uh, wouldn't it be great if I could get the voices of these people directly to my readers? So I called some of them back and said, can we redo the interview specifically with the idea of putting it up as an MP3 on the Internet? They said, sure. Uh, The first one I did, in fact, was around June 6th of 2003, a little over two years ago. And I just did more and more. And then when I finished the book, I branched out beyond web services and did interviews on other topics. And uh, like I say, it just took on a life of its own after a while. Wow. So they were just MP3 files on a site that people could come up and download and then RSS came along and you added that in? Yeah. I mean, at first I did what everybody else did. I had a, I had a blog and I, I put the files on my server and linked to them from my blog. And then when, um, I guess it was September of 2003, yeah, September of 2003, about a year before podcasting hit, uh, Dave Weiner did an RSS feed for some interviews of uh, Chris Lydon's. And uh, I heard that and I said, that's cool. Uh, and so the very next day, I made an RSS feed for my stuff with the enclosure tag. Um, so I, I, I'll stake the claim to being number two at something. How's that? <laughs> so that was a good, uh, you know, almost two years ago. Yeah. yeah. That's a good experiment. And what what did you, let's go back before IT conversations then. You know, you said that 2000 you were looking for work and decided to write the book. What had you been doing before that? Well, actually, I didn't say I was looking for work. I said I was unemployed. Uh, <laughs> The, the the difference is I was I was aggressively not looking for work. Well, I I I, I got into IT in the 1970s. Started a company uh, developing compilers. Ran that company for 18 years, and in 1995 or so, uh, decided that this internet thing looked pretty interesting, and sold that company, which by then was not in compilers. We were doing other things, but I sold that company and starting started a web hosting service. Uh, the web hosting service is the company that I mentioned that failed. We actually had a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is here in the States. Chapter 7 is a uh, is just a shut-the-door kind of bankruptcy. It's not a recoverable bankruptcy. That's a long story. It may not be too interesting. But I then decided to go on and uh, work not as a CEO but as a CTO in some startups and did three other dot-com startups over three years. And uh, then in 2000, uh, like I say, I left the last one and was I, I pretended to be a consultant and uh, uh, stalled by writing some books. <laughs> so you don't want to tell us too much about what these businesses were? It's sort of past Oh, no, they're, they're, they're all right. They, after the hosting service, uh, I was a CTO of an online dating service called goodcompany.com. Uh, that one's gone. That's a long story. Uh, then I was the CTO and vice president of engineering at Organic Online, which is one of the large web services, com- well, web service shops, not web services like we use it today, but design and web development uh, that, that actually did go public. Uh, and then I left and joined a CMGI company called NextMonet.com. Uh, we sold uh, Fine Art Online, and that's the company that I left in 2000. Excellent. So did you do well out of the dot-com period? Did you make a few bucks? Yeah, yeah, I did, I did quite well altogether, and uh, uh, that allowed me to be, uh, to be lazy. That's what allowed you to be unemployed and aggressively not looking for That's right. <laughs> it's a good life. So you've got a unique perspective, I think, on 
podcasting and I, I, what I'm really interested in is all of these events that you've been recording now for quite some time, O'Reilly's Emerging Tech, uh, BloggerCon, PopTech, etc., where there's just a fabulous catalogue of content that you've got out of that. How did that start happening, the, the event recording? Oh, that was an experiment. The first one we did was O'Reilly's eTech in 2004. That was February 2004. And I was just kicking the idea around with some of the folks at O'Reilly and uh, said, hey, how about if I come in and we stream it live and then we'll record the stuff and post the event, we'll put up the MP3s like we'd done for the interviews. And they said, sure, let's give it a try. Just don't announce it in advance because we don't want to cannibalize our registrations. So I went to the event, you know, set up a table and uh, streamed live over the net. And, um, you know, a few hundred people listened in. Um, because we didn't tell anybody about it. So the only way they discovered it was through the people who were blogging it live from the audience there. Uh, then the, but the, the on demand stuff was phenomenal. Um, you know, the, the thing that we've learned about doing events, which is a little depressing for the event people, is that, you know, three or 400 people might attend an event like that, but we're going to reach 30 or 40,000 within a month. So, the physical event now represents 1% or in some cases much less of the total audience. And uh, on the good side, that means for these event people that we're substantially extending the reach and, and influence of what they do. Uh, but it's also a little humiliating, humiliating for them or humbling because they have to do so much work, you know, hanging curtains and lights and things like that. And the people outside don't care about that. Yeah, I guess it's... It must be interesting for an event that is trying to run a business and, and profit from this. When you're picking up this content and distributing it globally, as you said, to tens of thousands of people who are tuning in, do the event management company get some sort of fiscal benefit out of that, or is it just a value-add? Uh, at this point, there's been no money that's flowed back to them. In fact, there's no money flowing anywhere. This is a, just a free exchange. And, and most... I think it's fair to say most of the event companies, they get it. They understand. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, let's take Chris Perillo, for example. He did Gnome Decks this, this past week. In fact, two days ago was Gnome Decks. And Chris gets it maybe more than anybody. His event was streamed live. It was recorded for download. He allowed anybody to come in, record anything, video, audio, whatever, because his goal is to be an influencer. He wants to get out the message and the content of his event. He's not going to make money from that. He's going to make money from all the people who are now aware of Gnome Dex and, uh, and Locker Gnome, his website and other services. Well, the same is true for O'Reilly, Supernova, PopTech, uh, the Open Source Business Conference, Software 2005, all the other events that we cover. Uh, they all understand that this is all about increasing their reach, increasing their influence. Um, and and that's, an, that's really what this is all about from their perspective, I think. Yeah, but and I can understand that they see this as, you know, I can imagine that if you tune in and listen to a pop tech uh, recording of the 2004 conference, that could encourage you to go to the 2005 conference. Do you find, though, that it's, changing as this is getting bigger and bigger and I would assume that you have a lot more people tuning into these shows now than you did two years ago with the 
popularization of MP3 based audio programming? Is it changing their perspective of what they're doing? If you're running an event, for example, and you've got, say, 500 people coming to the actual event and 50,000 people tuning in, is there an argument that says, well, the real audience of the event is the 50,000, not the 500, and therefore the event should be targeted to that 50,000? Well, in a sense, it is. Uh, again, depending on how progressive the event producer is, I think Chris Perillo uh, very much targeted at that extended audience. So if you look at what we're going to do for Supernova, not Supernova, sorry, Pop Tech coming up in October, again, they're going to include that external or extended audience as part of the event. Uh, a lot of discussions going on about how to do that. You know, you don't want to uh, make the experience such that the people inside the building who paid a lot of money feel they're getting ripped off. Uh, but, but in fact, the, you know, the people who attend these things and the people who listen by and large aren't the same people. They have a completely different set of circumstances. So, uh, there are relatively few people who say, I mean, a lot of people say, this is great. I can listen and I don't have to go. But when you really get down to it and you talk to people, uh, very few people are saying, you know, I was going to go. I was going to pay the thousands of dollars to, to, to attend this event. I think I'll stay home and listen instead. The fact is that most people have jobs. They can't leave or they have families or travel is very expensive and so forth. So uh, it's not really a cannibalization. In fact, if you look at most of the events that we produce, uh, most of them, they're selling out. So they're meeting their objectives as it is. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've been to a few of these conferences in the past, most recently, uh I was at Demo in Arizona in February. And I don't know how about other people, but for me, at least half of the value of going to events like that is the networking that happens in between the actual event, right? The the drinks, the dinners, that kind of stuff. You should have been at Gnome Dex. There was a lot of drinking and a lot of dinners. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> Mick, my partner, and I had tickets. We planned to be there, but business is too busy. Oh. Traveling halfway around the world uh, for a week and a half probably would have set us back. Yeah, that's not a that's not a lightweight decision when you have to come this far. Although you know it is summer here, so. <laughs> and but that leads me on to another question. I mean, you've got a massive amount of people now associated with Team ITC. You, there's something like uh, twenty five, thirty people. Uh, that's right. Uh, I'm assuming these are all part-time contributors or are they f a combination of full-time and part-time? Oh, no, there's no full-time. It's all part-time. Um, everybody either has a job or wishes they did. <laughs> uh, but we have, it's it's pretty wild. We have 50% um, uh, of the people are outside of the U.S. We have an Australian who's mentoring a New Zealander. Uh, we have three people in India. Two of them live in the same city and don't know each other. Uh, we have people in very exotic places like Kentucky, uh, which is a, a joke for Americans. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's um, – uh, but again, that also mirrors our audience. Our audience, if you look at IP addresses, is nearly 50% 50, 50 non-U.S. also. See, that's really interesting because we're similar in some ways in that we've got hosts or pod jockeys, as I've decided to start calling them as – I like that from our hosting provider all around the world, and you know, seventy percent of our audience is in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Isn't that interesting? That's because America Americans like Australian accents. That's why. <laughs> but most <laughs> of our hosts are Australian. Oh, okay. They're Americans. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 
But that's it. Look, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you're obviously running a global virtual uh, operation here, something that we've been talking about in the internet world for 10 or more years, and it's a, it's a reality now, right? Yeah, I mean, n- none of what we do except the actual recording of an event or a produced show, uh, uh, nothing else is real-time or geographically uh, centralized. So there's just no reason. It's arbitrary. So when uh, it's just as easy for someone to volunteer from another part of the world as it is to volunteer next door. Yeah. And, I mean, you think about the opportunities that brings to a business in terms of multiculturalism, different perspectives, diversity of opinion and approach. It's really fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, and don't forget spelling. We have to learn how to spell color with a U in the middle of it. Oh, don't get me started. My wife's a journalist, and she still has daily fights with Microsoft Word spell checker. <laughs> so, tell me about the future for IT conversations, then, Doug. Uh, what What are the plans for it over the next twelve to twenty four months? Well, um, I guess I could give you a bit of a scoop, actually, because uh, we're we're in the process of changing, not changing, but developing some new plans. They're not really well established yet. I think it's going to be about 60 days before we really can discuss it completely. But let me give you, let me step back and give you a little piece of the vision. If you think about what we've been talking about here so far, the conferences, uh, when conferences represent, let's say two thirds or even three quarters of what we do on IT conversations. Well, every day somewhere on the planet, uh, there are hundreds or thousands of people who are giving a presentation, a live presentation of some kind, And that presentation or those presentations are being lost. They are evaporating because nobody is capturing them. Nobody's recording them. So the goal of IT Conversations Plus or IT Conversations 2.0 is, quite frankly, to capture them all. We're going to go out and we're going to find a way to capture all or at least as many of the uh, presentations as we can on any topic imaginable, not just IT, not just tech. We're going to do the post-production, and we're going to put them out to the world for free. Um, that's the future. How's that? Wow. That's probably one of the most exciting vision statements I've heard since Google said they wanted to organize the world's information. Yeah, well, what they're doing is harder. <laughs> and, and this will take a lot more money. We're actually What we're going to do is this, and, and you can say we, you heard it on uh, Good Day first, and that is... You know, how, how are we going to go out? How are we going to go out and capture thousands and thousands of recordings every year? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to tap into the social conscience of podcasters. What do we have today? Eight or 10,000. What are we going to have a year from now? 25, 50,000 podcasters. Uh, what I want to do is I want every one of those people to spend a little bit of their time giving back to the community and helping to record and do the post-production on some event. Uh, it might be something at the local university. It might be something at, uh, it might be a tech event. It might be something having to do with sports or knitting or who knows what it is. But if everybody will participate in this and if we're going to develop a, a matching system, see, here comes in my experience with a dating service. You can see that now. Uh, if we can, uh, if we can get a matching service going where we can hook up podcasters with events, um, and uh, we'll we'll take care of that. We'll get that thing recorded. We'll get the post production done. We'll get it out there. We'll be working probably with the Internet Archive, uh, archive.org, and uh, they'll be handling our storage and distribution, at least for the time being. We'll also possibly be using BitTorrent, of course, uh, as an important tool. But uh, that's the plan. 
not if uh, the Supreme Court has its way. They'll be coming after BitTorrent next now that they're finished with Grokster. Yeah, but it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting one, and I actually look forward to taking that on because uh, one of the problems with BitTorrent right now is that uh, we're having trouble finding some large scale legitimate uses. I mean, to be frank, there are a lot of people using BitTorrent to move things around illegally, and what we want to do is be able to make the case that the technology is not to be blamed here, that um, we're going to show some significant non-infringing applications of that technology. And I think we have a good a good case for doing that. Yeah, it sounds like the vision that you've got would uh, go a long way towards demonstrating that. I hope so. You look, your, your vision statement really strikes a chord with me, Doug. I, you know, one of my responses to people over the last couple of years when they've asked initially why do you blog and then why do you podcast in the last six months has been to a large extent around that argument you know it strikes me that all of us are having great ideas or having opinions or having conversations on a daily basis which are getting lost they're not getting captured and I forget who it was that said that if they'd seen further it was by standing on the shoulders of giants but we all take ideas and inspiration from the things that we see here and read around us and build upon it don't we i think so and i I mean if you look at the uh, i mean it's been an interesting process for me personally because i i did this without any particular idea of why i was getting started but when we when we got into doing events uh the feedback was so phenomenal and when we when we did pop tech in the fall of 2004 uh, and we did some presentations there that were definitely not IT. And people said, well, why is it on IT conversations? But the fact is that the feedback was phenomenal. The, all these people who are in the IT world were fascinated by what was presented there in, at PopTech. And they were inspired by it. And we realized that, you know, what we're looking for is, you know, inspiration, education, and entertainment. And in something like PopTech, we had all three. So... Uh, to be able to to expose people to things well beyond what they're going to be able to find somewhere else, you know, a, a, a guy who's let's say he's a programmer and he's you know got his day job and he's getting paid to write code, he's not going to get to go to Pop Tech. It doesn't matter if he lives in the same town; he's certainly not going to get a chance to go if he lives in Australia or India or or somewhere like that. So, uh, you know, when you start getting email from people that comes in that says, you know, you've changed my life. Uh, it makes you sit up and look at that and say, what's going on here? And uh, uh, another advantage of this, of course, is that now when people ask me, what's your business model? I can now honestly say we don't have one. And, and that'll be that'll be much more rewarding that way. Well, uh, let me tell you on this show that you changed my life, Doug. I mean, I, I remember that PopTech uh, series of shows very well. I remember listening to... That was some of the earliest podcasts I listened to, uh, Spencer Wells and... Ben Saunders. I mean, these were absolutely inspirational talks given by some of the speakers at PopTech that I remember listening to in sort of October, November last year and thinking, wow, what a what a fabulous concept. Imagine if we could listen to more of this kind of stuff on a daily basis. What a what a more educational and, and aware world we would have around us well what happened was that i started getting calls from people who were in fact producing events or had speakers like that all the time 
I mean, I had the same experience you did. I, I got into pop tech just because of a personal connection that I had with some of the people there. It was an accident in a sense. Uh, it looked like cool stuff. Actually, to be honest, Malcolm Gladwell was one of the few names that I recognized at pop tech. I'd never heard of Ben Saunders or Alex Steffen um, or, or Thomas Barnett. Didn't know these guys. They had no clue. So uh, what happened was when we put that out, I, well, I was sitting in the studio. I was not at the event. We streamed from the event over telco lines back to the studio and then from the studio out to the internet. And I was sitting here in California. This event was on the other side of the States. And I, just like you, was listening to this stuff and was blown away. It, it was as fresh to me as it was to you. Well, it turns out that other people came forward and said, well, we've got events like that too. One of the best is a group called Accelerating Change run by a guy named John Smart. And a guy who works with him, Jerry Paffendorf, gave me a call and said, do you know anything about our group? I said, no, never heard of it. Well, we're doing an event in Stanford and blah, blah, blah. And would you like to cover it? Well, it's it's sort of the same as PopTech, but it's almost institutionalized because they're a nonprofit that's out there doing this all the time. And that led to another and another and another. And there are, uh, you know, there are the Ben Saunders of the world who are speaking every day somewhere. So, um, so PopTech is the tip of the iceberg. But even if you look at the amount of, speaking engagements that Ben can get in a year if he does if he does one a day and he gets to an average of a thousand people per day I mean that's that's a lot of people he's getting in front of that's, but that's right. your recording of him is up there it's recorded for posterity and there's going to be a a viable marketplace of hundreds of millions if not you know a billion plus people over the course of the next few years that have the ability to download and listen and get inspired and, and build upon Ben's thinking or Richard Alley's thinking or actually the one of the uh, recordings from that session I remember I can I can vividly remember where I was when I was listening to it was um, the biologist Janine Benyus talking oh yeah about mimicry yeah she's great oh it's just a, a a fabulous session so oh I was listening to shows like that that kind of inspired Mick Stanick and myself to start doing our humble little podcast, which led to the podcast network. Well, that's where... great. I mean, you know, there, uh, I can't take credit for these things. It's a, it's an accident almost. But while you were talking, I decided to go to Google and search for Bed Saunders. And bedsaunders.com is number one. And some other site I can't pronounce comes up. Uh, let's see. Circotransarctic.com comes up as number two. And number three is IT Conversations presentation of Ben Saunders at uh, PopTech. If you go to Mal look look for Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you know, IT Conversations comes up number two. Well, why is that? That's because people are listening to the shows, but more importantly, people are linking to us. And this is, this is a really, really important concept. This is why the content has to be free. People are often saying to me, you know, this content is great. You could charge for it. And, you know, back to your discussion of the events, for example, uh, there's the concept of charging for it to make money for the event producer. But when content can be linked to, the value of that content goes way up. So we don't link to the audio. We link to the show notes or we link to the descriptions in our case. But it's the linking uh, that allows people to essentially participate in the remix culture, as Larry Lessig says. It's the remix and reuse of the content that actually makes it more valuable. So when you do something like the New York Times is doing and put your content behind a toll gate of $49 a year, you're taking it off the market. You're saying this stuff 
cannot be reused. It cannot be remixed. Nobody can link to it. And what you've done is you've killed it. You've taken all the value out of it. But there's some middle ground, though, isn't there, Doug? I mean, what we're doing with TPN is making the shows free, but wrapping an advertising-based business model around it and licensing all the shows under a, an attribution Creative Commons license. I think that's great, yeah. Mash it up and mix it up as long as they attribute where they got the source from. No, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I was just taking a shot at people who say you've got to charge for the content because that toll gate literally is the kiss of death for content. You're You're locking it up and you're taking it off the market. And I think that's what a lot of traditional publishers are really having trouble with. And we see that with Times. Uh, we see that with people doing all sorts of things. So understanding then that you're not going to charge for the content, do you intend to monetize IT conversations? You said before that when people ask you about your business model, you can say you don't have No, we're, we're not going to monetize it at all. We want to have... Um, had an interest, there was an interesting interview, I wish I could remember who did it, with Leo Laporte. Leo is a you know, well-known personality here in the States. You probably know him too. And uh, was young. Oh, great. Well, you know, Leo ha- had said some brilliant things about the influence of sponsorships on content. And, of course, we hear that in podcasts. We hear that a lot of places. And not only – a couple of things. Not only does the sponsorship influence the content – and you know, if you, as you've gone out and tried to sell advertising for a podcast in this marketplace, everybody wants, uh, um, they want basically to pay for performance. They want click throughs. They want lead generation. They want that type of stuff and they want to maximize it. And that really starts to eat its way into your editorial content. So that's one issue. Um, the other is that once you say you need to generate revenues through advertising, you substantially increase the cost of your operation because you now have to spend time or even money to go out and secure those advertisers. And as the business grows, a significant percentage of your time gets into that. Look at public radio here in the States. Uh, I heard somebody say that when they have uh, membership fees, they spend half the money they get on membership fees just to get members. So so it, it makes your business much more complex. Well, the simplest business is one that has no revenues and no expenses. And uh, I don't think we can get quite to that point, but we can get close. And by keeping the costs extremely low, um, I think it's possible to live with essentially no revenues or very little revenues. So I know that you've got the donation button up on the site, and I think I read in one of your email blasts in the last few weeks that the money that's raised in that goes to the Team ITC people who are essentially volunteers helping that's out. That's right. And then you, you, you've mentioned a studio a couple of times. What is your studio? Is it a proper studio? Or <laughs> well, do you own? No, no. I'm, I'm in the studio right now. We call it Studio 2 because it's my second bedroom. In fact, it's not even a full bedroom. It's a it's a, a room that has my desk and my wife's desk in the same room. Um, the difference is that I've got some acoustical foam on my side and she doesn't. <laughs> so um, uh, a funny story about that, uh, uh, Adam Curry and I actually uh, flew home in my airplane uh, from Gnome Dex. He's staying in San Francisco at the moment. I have a small plane. and I, I flew back from Seattle and Adam's a pilot also, so we flew together. I said, hey, hey, you got to come by my house and see Studio 2. I kept talking about Studio 2. And <laughs> I think that when Adam finally saw Studio 2, he was incredibly unimpressed. 
Uh, I happen, you know, by podcasting standards, it's probably pretty fancy. But by Adam Curry standards, I think it's a big nothing. Uh, I've got a couple of racks of equipment. Uh, really, other than what a normal podcaster would have, I really have only two extra sets of stuff. I have a whole bunch of ISDN telephone equipment uh, because uh, we do remotes and we do studio-to-studio links with public radio stations. And the other rack of equipment is all about transfers because we get um, audio from conferences that might come on DAT tapes or DVDs or or uh, VHS tapes. And I've got a whole bunch of uh, equipment that allows me to do high-quality transfers and uh, set the levels and so forth. Hmm. It strikes me as um, interesting that you know, two of the people that have you know, invented podcasting or certainly leading the podcasting pitch yourself and Adam both made good money by the sounds of it out of the dot-com era and have used that to really you know uh, inspire tens if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world to take this content and make it more available and more accessible and this Cambrian explosion of content it's a really interesting thing for me this idea that the money that was some of the money that was made during the, the the dot com period has gone into these ventures that are really leading to an incredible movement. This concept of Generation C that we we hear quite a bit about now. It's a that's an amazing concept, and particularly as you're talking about now of going out and capturing all of this information that's happening in these conferences and making it freely available. Do you feel that you're part of a really important time in human history? You know, there's no way to tell that if you're in the middle of something. I think that would be that would probably be arrogant for me to to even think that. What I know is that I'm having a great time and that I find the work more rewarding than anything I've done for 30 years. So all I can really do is respond to that almost on a daily basis. You know, it's like anybody else. Uh, somebody something comes in email that makes you feel good and makes you want to do more of that thing. And when you get enough of it, it's a trend and you sort of wake up and say, uh, like, duh, this is working. And, um, in this case, it's really, it's really the IT conversations listeners who have driven this. And I, and I say that literally because it was the listeners that insisted on sending us money. And it was the listeners that in fact started sending us content. They People would send me MP3s and say, I recorded this event. Would you put it on IT Conversations? You know, Now, they could have done it themselves, but we happen to have a pretty large audience and a certain amount of prestige, so it made sense. Um, so they would send us audio, and then we said, okay, you know, most of the audio we're getting isn't good enough. We're trying to maintain a broadcast quality of uh, audio. But tell you what, would you like to volunteer to be either a writer or an audio engineer and, um, you know, at this point, we actually have more people who have volunteered than we can take on. We've just started a program of mentors about uh, four weeks ago. And uh, the, the mentors, we don't, I don't have enough mentors to handle the mentees at the moment. But back, back to your question, you know, um, changing the world and, and all that, um, it's, you know, it's, it's still very small. We have to remember that. Uh, Adam and I were talking. Well, Adam gave the closing presentation at Gnome Dex and uh, even before that in one of his blogs this week, he's talking about reaching a point where we have a hundred million people listening to podcasts. And that's when podcasting becomes legitimized, if you will. 
I mean, and until we get to 100 million, uh, which is a small number in global terms, um, this isn't having a big impact on the universe. What we're having is maybe a big impact on some people like you and me and so forth. Yeah, look, I agree with you that the numbers for podcasting uh, are relatively quite small. In fact, I'd love to get your perspective on how many people you think are actually tuning into podcasts. Have you got a you know, finger in the wind? I, I don't have a clue. You know, there was that Pew Internet Research study that said 6 million a couple of months ago. That seemed outrageously high to me and I think to most people. Um, you know, I and in fact, the numbers that we have at IT Conversations, I know are inaccurate. I, I'm pretty sure that for the for the most popular shows, we're now getting uh, – well, we just brought back an interview with Bruce Schneier from the archives. And Bruce's interview, that put him up to number one. I think we've probably had 65,000 listens to that show. Malcolm Gladwell, we just brought back yesterday because we're promoting PopTech, uh, the new PopTech. My guess is that Malcolm's show will hit 75,000, 80,000 total listens over the lifetime of that uh, within a couple of weeks. Um, I'm going to guess uh, that that Adam's show is probably the most popular. He's probably looking at 150,000 listeners, uh, maybe more. I, I don't really know, but um, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. And, you know, if you, if you think that most people listening to podcasts are tuning into either Adam or yours, that gives you a good estimation of the total number of listeners out there. Yeah, I mean, I think we are... A couple hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's say let, let's let's be bold and say that uh, maybe there are even a half a million regular listeners to podcasts. That's a, that's both at once a very large number by our standards and a very small number by any other metric like broadcasting. Yeah, but what I mean by having a big impact, I guess, is I don't look at it as where it is today. I you know I've been in the internet business as have you for over a decade now, and I remember the work done by a lot of people which were pioneers in some sense back in 94, 95 but obviously the history goes back even further but a lot of the work done by people evangelising and, and making certain tools available and driving certain ideas and paradigms out there over the course of a decade have had a massive impact on the way that people live and communicate with friends and family etc. Yeah that's true I mean there's a, there's a leverage effect if you look at um, you know Ben Saunders uh, who would have thought that what Ben did would have an impact on people? It wasn't really about that, was it? But, you know, yet through PopTech and uh, so on and so on, it, it escalates. I mean, look at, you know, we were all sitting at Gnome Dex. I was on stage at one point and looked out into the audience. Now, it's one thing, the fact that everybody in the audience had a laptop. And if you didn't have a laptop, I don't think they let you in. But what was amazing was most of them were Macintosh. Most of them were, had an Apple logo glowing at you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can play games and try and guess what that is, but you're really looking at a highly um, influential audience at that point. And I think that is, a, that is something to consider. And that supports what you're saying, perhaps, that, uh, that what we do may not hit the, the, the majority of the people on the planet by any means. But because we talk to influencers and influencers influence other influencers, uh, the effect can be quite large. And it's, as much as anything, it's just this concept that, hey, this can be done. You can go out there and 
record your ideas, your opinions, and make it accessible to a global audience, and it may lead somebody onto another strain of thought. And you know, the the leverage impact of us as a as a community, as a society, then can be incredibly powerful. We're in a really really interesting phase of human history. I think. I, I think so too. Now, recognize I'm not really a podcaster. Um, I the only thing I do that resembles a podcast per se is my weekly update, which is the most painful thing I do every week, where I have to actually sit down and you know talk about the last week's shows. Um, that stupid thing takes me like four hours, uh, and I and I hate it. And I'm going to find a way to get a, get away from it. But that's the closest thing to a podcast. But if if you look at if you look at podcasting, let's talk about what you and I would normally think of as podcasting, like Good Day World. Um, as a lot of people have said, you know, we're disintermediating. We're, we're basically making it so that anybody can talk to anybody. Well, there are actually two bottlenecks that we're getting rid of. There's the bottleneck on the input side, the bottleneck that says who is allowed to speak. We're allowing everybody to speak. Anybody with a couple of hundred dollars plus a computer, uh, and soon it'll be just a couple hundred dollars and a phone because you won't need a computer to podcast. Um, Anybody who has that has a platform that is technically as competent or capable as anybody else's platform. All right, we've eliminated that bottleneck. Now, there's the other bottleneck, which is on the output side, that's the filtering. Uh, broadcast radio, there's there's scarcity of spectrum in broadcast. Uh, there are people, there are editors, and you know we're going to get rid of all those people. We have gotten rid of all those people. So we've eliminated the bottleneck on the output side as well. Now, if you look at something like IT conversations, we only actually get rid of one of those bottlenecks. Um, no, I take it back. We get we we don't get rid of any bottlenecks. We're still uh, selecting content. We're certainly making it available to anybody. We're we're going out, I guess, through a, a lack of or, or a uh, uh, certainly abundance of uh, listening bandwidth. But uh, it's not the same as podcasting. Podcasting is a, an amazing phenomenon, uh, as is blogging, because. You're eliminating both the input and the output bottlenecks. Yeah, look, I guess you're, you're right. Uh, I, when I think of podcasting, I think of conversational audio programming that is available for anyone to record and to distribute and to consume. And I guess IT conversations recordings usually aren't conversational in nature, are they? They're somebody on a stage giving a presentation. Well, we have both. You know, we do have um, three weekly shows. We have Moira Gunn's program from Tech Nation. They're fabulous. And we have um, uh, Larry Magid, who also does a show for CBS, or many shows for CBS. He does Larry's World on IT Conversations. And we have Rob Greenley, uh, who does Web Talk. Uh, both, he's got a show on our network as well as the, uh, the Tech Podcast Network. So uh, we have, and then we have many, we have another half a dozen shows that are not regular. They're not weekly. They're uh, whenever they, whenever they happen. But we have the conversational in a sense too. The, the difference is that, you know, we're fussy about broadcast standards. I believe that, uh, and remember, this comes from the early days of what I was doing before I was committed to the new model, but we all have to face the fact that uh, listen time is, is a scarce resource, and we're all competing, whether we're making money or not, we're competing for people's ability to have time to listen. And one of the differentiators is going to be the audio quality. So we, we try and keep that as high as we can. Yeah. So what, is the, what, do you, what do you see as being the big challenges facing this kind of audio programming, podcasting, call it what you will, over the course of the next couple of years? 
Are you saying from as a as a group or for individuals? What are you thinking of there? As an industry, as a, as a medium, what do you see as some of the big challenges? Well, the the biggest of all, of course, is ease of use for the listeners. Uh, you know, we'll always have, we'll always hopefully. At the moment, I wonder if we don't have as many podcasters as we have listeners sometimes. But okay, we know we we know that maybe there are ten thousand podcasters and and half a million listeners, so we know the ratio is okay. But uh, it's still way way too hard to subscribe and listen to a podcast. I mean, we were talking about this last week at Nomdex. You know. As, as long as we're talking about RSS, as long as we're talking about iPodders and podcatchers, uh, this is a very uh, limited uh, audience that we're going to be able to reach. So I think the iTunes announcement, iTunes 4.9, is going to bring this maybe not to all of the world, but it's going to bring it to the next level or the next layer of onion skin uh, or the next orbit around the sun here so that more people can get to it. Uh, but, you know, this has to get into the browser. Uh, even more important, I think what's going to happen, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this year or next year, but when the mobile devices are complete podcatching clients, then I think we're really making progress. When you can subscribe to a podcast, manage your subscriptions, and receive them in your mobile device, then... We've, we've really done something. That's also important to me because I'm particularly interested in the third world. I'm interested in places where people can't afford computers and the, the, you know, the closest thing they have to a computer is going to be a mobile phone. A lot of these countries, uh, people live in areas where they don't have electricity and they have solar, uh, cells that they use to recharge their, uh, mobile phones and somebody has managed to come in and put a mobile tower somewhere in their community, but you know, they may not have electricity at home. So, you know, I want, I want the, you know, the woman in West Africa to be able to be a podcaster and I want everybody who she wants to interact with able to listen to her. That's interesting. So tell me about your interest or your, your motivation with third world countries and podcasting. Well, I think it comes back to the question that you raised about changing the world or having an influence uh, the technology of podcasting is so, so democratic as long as we keep the cost down. Once the cost goes up, of course, it's no longer democratic. But, uh, you know, we, we've seen what's happened with blogging in places like China. We've seen what's happened in blogging in places like Iraq uh, and Iran, where, where people uh, are actually able to both find out in those countries what's going on outside and people outside can find out what's going on inside those countries. And to me, podcasting is just more of the same. Uh, it's a perhaps in some cases a more convenient medium. Uh, you know, to be honest, people can podcast and can listen to podcasts when they can't read or write. So, uh, you know, there, there's a whole potential of opening up podcasting or let's talk about, you know, collaboration to worlds that are not literate. And blogging can't do that. So that's exciting to me. You know, again, that, that resurrects that theme that uh, I was starting to talk about before, that, you know, yourself and Adam made money out of the dot-com era, and now you're doing ventures that in different ways are um, bringing together new technology to create 
I hesitate to use words like a social movement, but to, to give back, I guess, is probably a simple way of putting it, because I do think Adam is giving back, mm-hmm. and, and you're giving back, although perhaps in different ways. And that's something that's really interesting to me. I mean, I, I'm an ex-Microsoft guy, and part of my motivation when I left Microsoft last year and eventually started the podcast network was to create a platform that I could use to give back. We've been saying for months that a good percentage of our time and our infrastructure will be set aside for deliberately non-commercial interests, tackling social issues that are important to us and creating awareness and programming about those issues. You know, I'm, you know I'm going to keep you busy. I've got things for you to do. Well, I, I tell you, I, I like what you're talking about. We should we should have another conversation about that. And in the last couple of months, I've been approached by a number of other people, uh, some other ex-Microsoft guys in Australia that I've worked with that have decided to you know, leave and pursue similar kind of endeavours. Uh, also other guys out of... Um, I caught up with a guy last week who was the CEO of Monster.com down here who, again, mm-hmm. is pursuing businesses that have a commercial but also a distinctly giving back flavor to them do you think that's an interesting trend that it's a, a generation of people the dot comers that did manage to have some success i mean you know i certainly i didn't make uh, any dot com gold but ended up in a situation where we you know can put food on the table is is that something new do you think i i do no, I th- I think the dot com period generated a lot of this, and I'll I'll tell you why. I think you know there are two kinds of people who made money in the dot com era. There were the business people, if I can call them that, who started businesses, who invested in businesses, who made a lot of money that way. But there are also people who didn't really get into that to make money. There were, think of all the millionaires that came out of Microsoft. Think of all the millionaires now at Google. Same kind of thing. And these are people who, um, who didn't start out with that objective of, of getting a lot of rich, uh, getting rich. Now, there's another thing that happened. There was, even for the people who went into it to make a lot of money, there was a significant disillusionment. Uh, you know, from my perspective, as I was going through the dot-com ramp-up, um, you know, I ran an old-style business for 18 years. This was a cash-positive, slow-growth, um, you know, always-profitable business. You know, we would never invest uh, ahead of our revenues for, for more than a quarter. So uh, for me to be sort of thrust into the dot-com world where I was actually sort of an old fart was uh, an interesting experience. Um I didn't believe it. It didn't make sense to me. I got wrapped up in it, but there was always a part of me that said, come on, this doesn't make sense. It's just crazy. And I think a lot of people either felt that going into it or certainly felt that way coming out of it when it really did collapse. And I think a lot of people have taken that disillusionment or not necessarily negative, have taken the lessons they learned from that and said, and reevaluated what their values were. They've reevaluated what it is they wanted to do, whether they made a lot of money or not. Yeah, and I think there's also other memes that are converging on this as well. If you look at the rise of anti-establishment voices like Michael Moore in the last few years, or films and books like The Corporation 
which are in some ways taking works that guys like Noam Chomsky have been talking about since the 50s and starting to popularise them for the masses, talking about the themes around, well, not that corporations are all evil or that business is all bad or business people are all evil, but that this particular corporate lifestyle, I guess, that a lot of us have been uh, shoehorned into over the last three or four decades isn't necessarily meeting the the, the needs or desires of a, a large section of the community out there who, as you say, are now reevaluating and looking to do something different with their life. I think that's true. I mean, and even people who are not abandoning or leaving that lifestyle, um, you know, there's there's more to life than the job, and there's more to life than uh, than making money, and that's always been the case. I mean, we've always had uh, entertainment and sports and hobbies and all that kind of stuff, but. I, I do think there are some interesting opportunities to give back, as you say, um, as part of your hobby. And and that is something that's very unique. Now, that, if I were to think about that more, because that's just something I just came up with just in the moment. But my guess is if we were to look back and look at what people used to do for hobbies before there was technology, probably was the same thing. There was probably always a way to have a hobby that was giving back to the community. But that's what this feels like to me is that people are saying, I can, I can have fun. I can do the thing I want to do. And at the same time, you know, try and make the world a better place. Actually, I've just been reading JD Lassica's book, Darknet, recently. Uh, we just did an interview with J, uh, Denise Howell did an interview with JD today on IT Conversations. I'm with him tomorrow. He's uh, doing the rounds. Your, your, yours will probably be up before ours because we have to go through the volunteers, which is not an efficient process. So yours will be online probably. Well, actually, I think the be. same email that Buzz Bruggerman used to introduce me to you also introduced me to JD. So uh-huh. there you go. But reading JD's book, there's there's a bit in the uh, first chapter, I think, in the book where he's quoting somebody I can't remember who it is, but talking about that if you go back beyond a hundred years ago, people entertained themselves. They entertained their family, they entertained in their village, in their church, whatever the small social forum was. They wrote and acted out plays, they performed musical numbers, and they wrote little stories and that kind of thing. And that this era of mass media, one-to-many media that we're all familiar with at the beginning of the 21st century is really a fairly new concept in human history. And that some of these technologies now are perhaps signalling not an about turn but a little bit of a you know coming back to this era of people being willing and able now to produce their own content and distribute it to a global community that may be a small niche community but global nonetheless over uh, a couple of centuries we delegated our entertainment to others uh, that's a sort of a, a spin on what JD wrote in that first chapter. And when you give up the control of your entertainment to somebody else, you put them into a position where they have to start treating you less as an individual and they have to start doing so-called mass media or mass entertainment. And the more people who give it up, uh, the more that's going to be generic and less of interest to individuals. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but uh, television here in the States has become so bad. 
Uh, and, and, you know, it's not just the critic and me saying that. I mean, the, the numbers are going down. People are stopping. Uh, people are no longer watching television. They're turning the thing off. But we just get all of your television here, man. Oh, man. I'm sorry about that. I, I, felt, I feel bad enough. That makes, it makes it worse. <laughs> Seinfeld made up for everything else. We can forgive you everything else. I know, but, I, years but how, how many times can you watch all the Seinfeld episodes, you know? <laughs> well, if you ask my wife, she gets very angry at me because I can watch the same episode for the 50th time and still laugh. I can still watch the Puffy Shirt, puffy shirt episode. That's pretty good. Listen, Doug, I better start to wrap this up. I've okay. almost taken up an hour of your time. But look, it's been an absolute joy. I really appreciate you taking time out of what must be an incredibly busy day to, to chat with us. No, this is great. I've had a lot of fun. You give me a good excuse. Uh, we're just, uh, I'm in the middle. I don't normally produce any of my own shows anymore, but we just today recorded um, a show with Ernest Miller all about the uh, MGM versus Grokster case. And uh, when I get off with you and have a bite to eat, I'm going to try and get that up live in the next couple of hours. So uh, that'll be a a fast turnaround for us. Well, I look forward to tuning into that and uh, to the rest of the IT Conversation shows. Look, thank you again from... Personally, for me, for the work that you've done for the last couple of years, it has inspired a totally new direction in my life and I'm sure thousands of other people. And we look forward to your future success. Well, Cameron, thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun to be here. Hi, I'm Ewan Spence, host of TPM Rock, the rock show on the podcast network, featuring unsigned and unknown bands like The Revolutions. ADD. Adam Richmond. Liquid Carousel. www.thepodcastnetwork.com slash rock. Every Friday, 30 rocking minutes for your oral pleasure.